0: But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. But I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if, I, if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law. Though not being myself under the law, that I may win those who are under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings." This is the word of the Lord.
1: You may be seated. And thank you so much, Sharon. We're going to continue to be in God's word and 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I hope you'll keep your Bibles open. To be honest, you're going to get real bored real fast if you don't keep your Bible open because all we're going to do is talk about the Bible. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verses 15 through 23. You ready? Very excited for this morning, and can I just be honest with you for a second? Oh, first of all, before I do that, um, my name's Evan Skelton. Um, I'm one of the pastors here beside Larry and John. Um, Larry Babb who, and John Christensen, who you've uh, already heard from in our service. If you're just now joining us online or in person, we... Uh, we don't know what's brought you here today, but we are really glad regardless. Um, but again, if I can just be really honest with you, today we are gonna continue our series in on discipleship, on making disciples, we're calling it Follow Me. Not saying follow me, following Jesus. That's what discipleship is, is to follow Christ. And we're calling others, they follow me as we follow Christ. And today we're going to transition to talk about something we've not really yet talked about in this series. We're gonna talk about how to make disciples outside of these doors. Last week, we talked about how to make disciples here, among God's people. That's where discipleship primarily takes place, is within the church, inviting others to grow, to understand the good news of Jesus, and to walk in step with it. Now we're going to be talking today about evangelism, and when it comes to talking about evangelism, I get really nervous. Because I have to just tell you, I feel very convicted as I even write these words about how little I can practice many of these things. I can't, I, I, today I feel the pressure to say all the things uh, because I, I want my heart to be more faithful in these things than I am. And I hope today that we might find that the gospel, it not only makes us more obedient in these things, That we find these things to actually be our delight. And I hope you'll find that experience as we learn from the example of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. That's where we're going to go today. And I hope you keep your Bibles open. Again, we're going to be talking about evangelism. Now, I recognize in talking about evangelism, many of us uh, already are trying to plot our escape trying to figure out how to shrink a little bit lower in our seats. When talking about evangelism, uh, it feels a little bit like uh, I feel when um, my family says, we're all going to go out and play some basketball together. I just feel like I want to disappear, okay? So many of us feel like that when it comes to evangel- evangelism. If people only knew here how, how, uh, how uh, long it's been since we actually spoke of our faith to anyone else, how poorly it's gone for us, how terrified we actually feel. Some of us, though, uh, just to be honest, in the times that we're in, and we feel um, just very irritated at Christians who would shove their beliefs down the throats of others, where it seems like the furthest thing that, from love for many of us. If we really did love others, wouldn't we let them find something else to keep them to help them sleep at night, to, to let them think what they think, find meaning on their own terms? Sure, I've got my Christian faith and it helps me, but why would I insist on shoving that down the throats? Of others. Others of us, we're not so sure that we're all that cut out for evangelism. Uh, we, uh, we, it's just not gone well for us in the past. Uh, we've got so many other things to worry about. We have very little time as it is. We, you, it might cause problems at work or in our friendships. We don't really know anyone who is a Christian, some of us, um, and the ones we do know, we're pretty sure they don't really want to talk about these things. Um, it's never, again, gone well when we brought it up before. Isn't this something we pay maybe a professional to do? Maybe this is why pastors and leaders exist, is to do the evangelism, to bring in people into the doors. Well, friends, evangelism, let me just say again, what is it we're actually talking about before we get into how the gospel addresses some of these fears and hesitations, which are very real. Evangelism, put simply, is teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. That definition doesn't come with me. It comes from Max Stiles. Teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. I love every element of that definition. It's not just sharing my testimony or my life story. It's teaching something, aiming to actually uh, recount content, specific details about who Jesus is and what he has done. About the gospel, about the central good news, the center of this story, what the Bible is about. But it's not just doing it Uh, for the sake of of me. It's not just vomiting out the gospel, patting myself on the back that I finally had the courage to do it. It's with the aim to persuade, teaching the gospel and however I can, being able to give the time and attention and the creativity and the intentionality to it so that the person I am teaching it to might understand it as I have come to understand it myself. Friends, that is what evangelism is, and The reason evangelism is so important might actually surprise many of us. You see, no one becomes a Christian simply because they're born into Christian faith. I remember asking somebody, again, uh, to share their story with me. How did you become a Christian? They've been a longtime member of our church, and I'll never forget how they responded. Pastor, I'm not sure I understand the question. You see, I've always been a Baptist. You're never born into the Christian faith. Everyone who is a Christian has to personally convert to christianity to come to faith in jesus christ for the forgiveness of their sins they need to actually wake up to their own desperate need for him their own sin and come in confession and repentance to him asking that he alone he that he would rescue and rec- recognizing his death upon the cross and his resurrection for the grave is the only thing that'll do it that's the only way that if somebody becomes a christian they're not born into it they can't they definitely can't buy their way into it you can't be related to someone Who is a christian and somehow get your way in you can't be married to someone who is a christian and somehow get your way in but nonetheless in evangelism again the reason it's important is because no one becomes a christian without someone explaining the gospel to them no one becomes a christian without someone explaining the gospel to them it's how god has set it up to be god could have let's just be honest determined a variety of ways for people to come to faith in him, to come to understand the truth about who Jesus is. He could have made angels appear to each and every one of us. He could have written it in the sky. He could have made a tattoo show up on your forehead one morning, and if that's your story, I want to hear about it. But God instead has determined in his sovereign wisdom and purposes to use the mouths of his people as the means by which more people would be added to his people. It's how God has set up for, for it to happen, and that includes mouths that are as uncertain and weak as mine, as I've already told you that is. Romans 10 14 puts it this way, how then will they call on him on whom they have not believed, and how are they to believe in, whom, uh, in him of whom they have never believed? heard, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? No one comes to faith without somebody explaining the gospel to them. And if you are a Christian, it's because someone had the courage and the kindness and the compassion to explain it to you. But still, all of those hesitations, I can't just end there, can can I, and just say, okay, go and preach the gospel because nobody becomes a Christian without it. Okay, and we're done at what? what? What time is it now? Okay, 1120? Now we have much more we need to say here because if we're going to actually see this thing transform our lives, we don't need more just to know strategies and that's where we could have gone today. In fact, I was wrestling about what text to pick. What does my heart need to hear? What does our hearts need to hear? It's not so much of what's the do's and don'ts of evangelism. What we need to hear is the motives behind it. Those are the only, because motives when it comes to evangelism are actually everything. Motives matter deeply. Motives matter deeply. Let me tell you why. So uh, when, I, when I was growing up, I used to go to a youth conference on evangelism, uh, which gathered literally thousands of teens from all over the state, and these conferences would take place actually all over the country. And like a soda bottle that's uh, shaken up too much, uh, it shook up these teenagers with video clips, dramas, and teachings only to unleash them back on our city onto their malls, parks, and neighborhoods, and uh, to uh, evangelize, to begin to share the gospel. I'll never forget uh, one of the dramas, though, that they showed at the conference. It was titled, if you can believe it, A Letter from Hell. A Letter from Hell. It's still burned into my memory, excuse the pun, uh, but in this drama, a teenager is killed by a tragic car accident, and only, uh, and only then to write a letter from hell to his Christian friends asking why didn't you tell me about Jesus? I'll tell you what, many of us have problems even right there, but as a kid, that really messed with me. There were a lot of tears in that room, as many furiously called their co-workers, classmates, and relatives, all trying to desperately explain the gospel. I have to tell you, guilt can be a powerful motivator, can't it? In fact, I find that guilt is one of the main tools often in a religious person's tool belt. Other tools include fear or pride or shame, motives that we're used to pulling out or using on others to get them to do what we want them to do, motives we preach at ourselves in a mirror hoping to get ourselves to change. These can be powerful motives, but thinking back to this illustration, let let me ask you, What do you think the lives of those teenagers, including myself, looked like a week later? Maybe a month later. Maybe a year later. Do you think the same gospel conversations were as consistent and desperate? I can tell you in my life, they certainly were not. You see, even though guilt can be a powerful motive, it is not a lasting motive. But then compare this to Paul. You see, in a letter that we're reading, which is what this is, Paul's writing to a church, a specific people in mind, uh, these people are not exactly on great terms. You see, many in this church had a hard time trusting Paul in their mind. What Paul had going for him in content and truth, he was lacking in form and show. He wasn't the most impressive or charismatic speaker. Add to that, he refused actually to receive a paycheck from him from them. It was a common practice in this society, especially for the really influential guys, the ones that you wanted to be attached to, you would pay them some money. Another sign this was that that, to them that Paul was a second-class, uncredited, non-influencer, a fool with a foolish message. But in this really incredible letter, Paul seems undaunted by what they think of him. He's going to end up defending himself even prior to this passage, but it's as if Paul leans into his weakness into the things that make him dismissible. It's as if he cares very little about impressing anyone if only the gospel might take the spotlight. I can tell you I am really envious of that kind of courage. I can't tell you how easily I get tongue-tied when it comes to living and speaking as a public Christian, let alone making a proactive case for the gospel itself. Why is it that Paul wasn't as full of guilt and apathy, like me. Why is, is he really just that unique? I mean, is it just that Paul was cut from a different kind of cloth? I don't think so. When it comes to evangelism, you see, motives matter. And I think the freedom and discipline Paul lived by come from two particular motives, which I think can be ours as well, which unlike guilt or fear or pride or shame, these motives are lasting, and they have tremendously practical effects. Ready to look at the first? The fear of God. Motive number one. The fear of God. Would you read verses 16 through 17? Like I said, we're going to be in the Bible a lot. For if I preach the gospel, it, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For I do this, if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. I'll never forget what it was like as a young man to be told by my dad when he had to go on a trip or something like that, all right, son, I'm leaving you as the man of the house. As the oldest, that was my responsibility. Um, and I have to tell you, the, the burden that I felt when he would say that and also the tremendous sense of honor. Now, when my dad said that to me, let me ask you, did, did, was he intending for me to throw that around with my siblings, which I may have done once or twice? Is it meant to say, well, I'm the man. You need to listen to me, bro and sis. Is that what my dad is intending? Not if I don't want to hear from him when he comes back, right? And not if I don't want to have to really answer for that, but when it, again, um, when my dad said these words to me, like the, the older I would get, the more I came to understand what they meant. They, he was looking for me, to defend and care for everyone like he would. In a sense, my dad was sharing with me some of his own responsibilities. And the more I came to realize what a responsibility it was, the more I wanted to make my dad proud by the time he came home. Now, when it came to the role that God had called Paul into, Paul saw himself much in the same way. He saw himself, uh, as the passage calls it, and he refers to himself this way at various points as a steward. Now, I realize we don't use that term very often. We don't use that language very much, maybe when we're talking about money and stewardship, but in the ancient world, a steward would have been, tie, would have been a chief servant in a household, uh, a bond servant. He would have had the responsibility of running the household and managing the master's affairs as if the master was there themselves. In other words, in other words, uh, Paul thought of his role as an apostle When he thought of it, he didn't use it as uh, we often do. He didn't hide behind this title. He didn't use this title as a trump card or a badge to pin on his chest. When he spoke of himself as an apostle, he didn't say, look at who I am, look at what I've achieved. Don't you realize that you need to listen to me? Paul didn't use this title to demand respect. No, even as he was an apostle, Paul recognized that he was still a servant first and foremost, of someone else. He was God's steward, God's representative, entrusted to lead and care for his people, to speak as God would speak on God's behalf. And that recognition didn't inflate his ego or puff out his chest, it sobered him. He experienced in the truest and best sense what it meant to fear God. Now when I say fear, what I don't mean is that Paul feared God flying off the handle, or that God was somehow waiting for a reason to be disappointed, waiting for a reason to punish Paul. I realize that's how many of us see God, but not so, Paul. But I also realize that I just said that fear wasn't a lasting motive, didn't I? But the kind of fear that Paul experiences is, a mu- is, is fear of a different kind. It's a much different kind of fear than the fear of others. Looking back at verse 16, notice that Paul doesn't Just say, I have to preach. What does he say? Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. What this is getting at is Paul's own trembling awareness that even as his whole life has been swept up by God's grace and God's grace alone and into this calling to preach the gospel... He has been entrusted with a stewardship, a stewardship that he did not seek out for himself, a stewardship that led him to the conclusion he will one day see his master and answer for how faithful a steward he had been. Even as he was saved by grace, he realized that with it came a particular kind of calling, good works left to do, and he would answer to that God for how well he had fulfilled the task he had been called to complete, how faithful a steward he had been. Unlike the immature and momentary motives we are used to, this sense of calling and healthy fear inspired Paul to endure through terrible doubt, through terrible distress, through loneliness, sickness, and most importantly, intense hostility, even from the people that he loved, even from the people in this church. But do you know that there's actually a sense in which we are all stewards? We are all considered stewards according to the Bible. We, like Paul, fear God because we are called his stewards. Peter will put this directly in 1 Peter 4.10, that we are stewards of the varied grace of God. But like Paul, this stewardship is bound up with our calling. Now what do we mean Calling. See, Christians do not have the same kind of calling that Paul himself received as an apostle, of course, Paul had been given a particular task by Jesus to do what had not yet been done, to preach the gospel among non-Jews. He was entrusted as a particular authority um, in the church upon whose teaching the rest of the church would be built, and none of us are called to be an apostle like Paul is. If you think you are, we should talk after service, but there's an important sense in which every Christian is a Christian because of a different kind of calling, because we have been called to Romans 8. Romans 8. Puts it this way: and those he predestined, he also called; and those he called, he also justified; and those he justified, he also glorified. This is often called the golden chain of salvation, a process of salvation that God has responsibility over. A beautiful story He has written and is bringing to its end. But notice the language: before the foundation of the world, before you ever put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, if you are a Christian. God knew you, God chose to rescue you, and he called you to himself, to belong to himself. But what's particularly important about this kind of calling, about being called to God himself, is that calling has been bound up with a new kind of stewardship, that we are responsible for stewarding well this grace we have been entrusted, like receiving an unexpected inheritance or receiving the cure to humanity's greatest disease— We are stewards of the grace of God. We are stewards of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice the implications of this in another letter that Paul writes in Ephesians chapter four, verse one. Therefore, he says, as a prisoner of the Lord, you wanna go to that verse for me, Drew? Thank you. For the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of what? The calling to which you have been called. Walk in a manner worthy of, of the calling to which you have been called. Now, walking in that doesn't make us worthy of the calling. We don't get the calling because we were worthy, but nonetheless, having that calling, we walk in step with it. We demonstrate a kind of life that is in keeping with it. That implies that it's possible not to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. It's possible not to. In a sense, it's possible to dishonor that calling, which brought you forgiveness, which brought you life and freedom, to not actually live as a free person. But what does honoring this calling then look like or put a different way, what kind of aspects of my life will it include? What will be bound up with it? Everything. Every part of our lives, every desire and dream, every relationship and role gets swept up into this calling. Everything I do, everything I have, everything I experience, every circumstance turns out to be an opportunity for me to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which I was called. And it turns out, evangelism is bound up with it. How so? What is evangelism? You might say it's simply treating Christ as Lord with my words, fearing God with my words. In being called to Jesus, to this Lord and Savior, I am now called to speak to others in a way that agrees with that reality. I am called to speak about Jesus as someone who really does believe now that Jesus is the Lord of all of my life. I'm called to speak about Jesus as someone who, again, is invite, who just as he invited me, has inviting others to experience the same. After all, Paul says elsewhere there's a sense in which God makes his appeal through Paul himself and the other apostles. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, it says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Did you notice that? Again, Paul, how does he say that God has chosen to make his appeal? Has he done it through skywriting? Has he done it through a tattoo on your forehead? Has he done it through an angelic appearance? No, he's done so by making his appeal through human beings. Now, the same could be said of us. Of course, not in the same way. You and I are not apostles. We don't bear this, this, this kind of calling uh, doesn't sweep up our lives in the same way. But when God makes his appeal, nonetheless, we need to recognize when God implores others to be reconciled to him, do you realize he makes his appeal through us? Just think about that for a second. God has chosen to make human beings his mouthpiece. If you are a Christian, that means regardless of how you think about yourself, if Christ is your Lord, God has chosen to use you as his mouthpiece. Does that make you tremble a bit? I mean, I, I certainly do. I, I, in fact, I think it should make us tremble a bit. But Paul's fear, like our fear, the fear of God, isn't necessarily a fear of punishment, as it is a sense of awe. In a sense, yes, we don't want to have to answer to God for a wasted life. The fear of God is the fear of abusing, misusing, or not using what God has entrusted to us. And if that is true, we want to spend time honestly evaluating our time and priorities, saying, am I using my time, my money, my opportunities in a way that really does demonstrate that Jesus has rescued me from my sin? Does my life really demonstrate that Christ himself is in charge of my life? One of the most basic ways we will be able to tell is in examining the way we speak. In many cases, uh, the ways that we don't speak to others. But even more, this fear has to do, not again, just with this sense of responsibility before our maker, it has to do with awe and love. We fear God because we love God. After all, we don't hear a hint of begrudging obligation with Paul, do we? Paul's language instead assumes a relationship of love, even with one who is his master, He obeys not only because he will answer for his calling, but because he wants to do his savior, no dishonor. Paul maintains a sober sense of honor about what he has been entrusted. And more importantly, he knows what it means to be loved by this same God himself. He knows what cost Jesus endured to make him an enemy of God, Christ's own brother. Why would he ever want anything to stand in the way of that good news? As verse 12 puts it, He says he would rather endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Fear of God turns out to be a lot closer to the love of God than we realize. But let me give you one really practical implication of this before we move on to that second motive. Fearing God frees us from fearing others. Fearing God frees us from fearing others others. Again, this is easier said than done, but if it's true that Jesus is my Lord, then the implication of that is no one else is. Of course, we are to honor the authorities God has put in place over us, but it is not them finally we are striving to please. Paul puts this in Galatians 1, verse 10, for now, am I now seeking the approval of men? or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Do you see how Paul says these are warring? You can't fear both at the same time. You fear God, or you fear others. You fear others, or you fear God. So many of us, particularly me, are tied up in knots about offending others when it comes to explaining the gospel, And let's be honest, there are so many challenges when it comes to evangelism, particularly today, increasingly so. We are moving into a post-Christian kind of world where it's more and more costly to be a public Christian. It's normal to experience a fear of what others think, of whether they will take me seriously or not. In fact, it shows that we are aware of the stakes and actually care about the person in front of us, not just about bludgeoning them over the head. But so many of us, particularly, have allowed a fear of others to make us quiet. A fear of others to turn us from public Christians to private ones. The only thing that will allow us to overcome this fear, do you know, it turns out to be a sense of greater fear. Think of these lines from Amazing Grace. Let me take a drink and... I'm getting a little excited this morning. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to what?" Anybody know the line? Fear. "'And grace my fears relieved.'" "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, "'and grace my fears relieved.'" Is that confusing to you how those are bound together? How can it bring fear and relieve from fear. It doesn't seem like a stretch to say that second line that the gospel relieves our fears, but do you realize that it does so actually by giving us a different fear in its place? This is why Paul can say that even as he knows he stands before God, that necessity is laid upon him to preach the gospel. This same awareness has made him free Free from what exactly? Free from being owned, from being mastered by anything or anyone else. He knows who he belongs to. Only God gets to hold the reins of his life. In other words, knowing the fear of the Lord frees us from the fear of others. And it frees us to do what we were made for. Of course, we all struggle with this, particularly me, particularly any of our pastors. But don't you long for this kind of freedom? Let's still look at this second motive, finally. The love of neighbor. You see, Paul didn't just experience a freedom from something, he experienced a freedom for something. Specifically, to present the gospel, as he says, free of charge. He even refers to this in verse 18 as being his reward. Isn't that interesting? His reward is to preach the gospel free of charge. In other words, even as he owes God everything, even as his life has been swept up in this calling to preach the gospel, and he did not choose this calling for himself, again, then notice the lack of begrudging obligation there. Still, his reward, his freedom, was to present that gospel now free of charge, whatever lengths he had to go through to do so. After all, the heart of the gospel was that God's gift of salvation comes freely to those who receive it. Without payment, without a record of obedience, faith comes with empty hands, desperate to receive what God only can provide and what I couldn't possibly afford. Isn't this how Paul came to him? After all, he heard this gospel while he was still the enemy of God, an opponent of his people. He came to God literally with blood on his hands, the only thing he could offer to God was his record of wrong. So why would Paul allow his ministry practice to communicate the opposite? This is why Paul would work a trade, why he, he even if it might make him seem second class in the eyes of others, why he would offer his gospel as it was first offered to him, free of charge. This isn't the only right that Paul gave up, that the gospel might be hear, heard with clarity and with interest. Verse 19 through 22 are some of the most interesting verses in this passage, and I wish I had time to go into deep depth about, about them, but it speaks of other rites, several rites that Paul gave up along the way. He became as a Jew to, in order to win Jews. Notice, as a Jew, he will assume that being a Christian transcends all of these categories. Like those who are under the law to win those under the law. Like those outside the law, to win those outside the law. Like the weak, to win the weak. We don't have time to go into deep detail about these, save to say that Paul determined what he ate, how he spoke, who he hung out with, by very different rules. After all, think about how we use our money, our time, our energy. What are we willing to do? give these up for, to use them up for? What are you glad to spend these things on? What comes naturally to you? Isn't it often for the things that we feel like we have earned the right to enjoy? In fact, our culture loves talking about rights right now. Inventing new rights and attaching ultimate, even religious, importance to these rights. The right to choose what is right for your own body. The right to not wear a mask, the right to sleep with who you want to, the right to your own privacy, the right to choose your pronouns, the right to carry a gun, the right to rend our opponents, those who stand in the way of my rights, limb from limb. Our culture is stumbling all over itself to discover, to invent, and assert new rights in many ways because we think by doing so, we will finally achieve the kind of stability, significance, and love we are all longing for. But you notice what we're becoming as we do. We're chewing up and spitting out one another along the way. We see one another all the time as an enemy. It takes very little for us to become ticked off and determine the other person is on the wrong side of history, the right, wrong person stands in my way, and before we know it, we become the very judgmental people that we hate. Notice, though, that Paul speaks of his rights very differently, doesn't he? He doesn't assert his rights. He, couldn't seem to, he seems to give up his rights very quickly, he couldn't give him up fast enough. Why? Because in the gospel, Paul believes he has uncovered the secret to security, the secret to significance, the love that he needs he already has in Christ. and it freed him now not to demand his rights anymore, because what does he not have in him? In fact, here's what Paul now characterizes himself as, not just as a steward of God, but as a servant of others. Did you notice that language? Verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Friends, many of us are used to Christians treating others like a project to accomplish. Maybe you have even been treated this way. Do you know what it's like to have someone look at you as if you were just another box to check? Or as the language here puts it, another soul to win. I think this kind of attitude is one of the things that makes our evangelism actually so ineffective. But notice Paul doesn't deliver the gospel out of some sense of oppressive guilt or selfish desire to add more lines to his resume, resume, to check more boxes. No, Paul is motivated by a deep sense of compassion, the same compassion that we are told Christ felt as he saw the crowds as sheep without a shepherd, the same love that God feels. As he said, for God so loved the world, he sent his only son. Paul is motivated by the same sense of love, and it has made him, he recognizes, a servant. How will he use his freedom? Not to assert his own rights, but use his freedom to free him up to be a servant which means that Paul understands evangelism not as an imposition, as many of us might think it is, or another box to check on his spiritual checklist, but as an act of service. Do you see evangelism that way, as the greatest act of service? Because if you, if in doing so, he is passing on the greatest gift he has ever received, and he is willing to do whatever it takes that it might be heard with interest and understanding. Even as he says he desires to win many to Christ, this is less like winning a prize in a fair than it is like winning someone over in an argument that really matters. Now I realize many of us have no problem loving our neighbor, at least in theory, but we would rather love our neighbor in ways that are just less awkward and costly than evangelism. It's no wonder, because as Mark Dever puts it, the message of the gospel is inherently confrontational. The gospel requires us to change our deepest loyalties. Jesus will not be just added to your life. He will take over your life. The gospel requires us to surrender our deepest desires and who is looking for that kind of interruption. But also summarizing Mark Dever, Can I really claim to love my neighbor by withholding the greatest and best aspect of my life? If I really do want the same good for others that I want for myself, if I want to love my neighbor as myself, if that is the kind of love that Jesus has asked of me, isn't Jesus the greatest and highest good? If I want the best for those I love, don't I want them in the end to have Him? This is why evangelism is downstream from the call to love God and love our neighbor. It is a natural repercussion of it, not just another task a Christian might might perform. Of course, only God can save us. He can only finally open our eyes to the beauty that is found in him but loving my neighbor means I serve my neighbor to be whatever kind of servant I can be for my neighbor that I might persuade others to find the one who has found me. Certainly many of the ways that we are called to love our neighbors won't be in verbally proclaiming the gospel after all, many people will only take the gospel seriously as they see a life that commends it. It's why holiness matters, why Christians should be different, remarkably different, live countercultural lives. In many ways, people have said this generation desires to see whether the gospel is good before they ever consider whether it is true. Our holiness matters, our love for one another matters, our commitment to justice and mercy matters, and they matter deeply but it is impossible to love my neighbor in the truest and best sense without teaching the good news of Jesus with the aim to persuade. Let me ask you, though, and I'm asking myself these questions, and I just even tremble to do so. Do I see myself as a servant of others? Do you? Would others speak of you that way, particularly those who do not share your convictions if you're a Christian? Do do they see you loving them on their terms, meeting their needs, being their friend without making them a project? Do you listen well to their problems? Listen well to their problems. Do you show up for them in times of crisis? Are you thinking creatively how to share your time, your life, your home, even your money with them? Do you spend regular time thinking, what kind of servant does my neighbor My coworker, my peer, my family, my friend, my classmate, what do they need me to be? Are you even present in the lives of non-believers? I think, I don't know how many times I've heard that. Many of us don't know how to take a first step in the gospel because we don't know anyone. My first piece of advice is be present. Change your behaviors. Change your habits. Get around people who don't know Jesus. Grow in intentional, servant-hearted friendships with those who do not share your convictions? And most importantly, do you pray regularly for opportunities to explain and apply the gospel to them, ready to make sense of the hope that you have within you, to offer them free of charge, what was freely given to you? Now when it comes to evangelism, it's impossible to speak of amounts when it comes to these things, about how many times you should share this week. But let me ask you, have you shared the gospel? Have you explained your faith in the last year? If not, why? That, and I, I need to say to those parents out there, if that includes your kids, that is your context for evangelism and discipleship, and it matters very deeply. But let me ask you, are you faithful? Have you, do you see yourself as this kind of steward? You know, it's also, an, it's impossible to speak again how to manhandle a conversation to get to the gospel as fast as possible. I think many of us have gone through those kind of trainings, but being a servant means that I want to get there soon, and I want to see when I get there, I want them to be persuaded. Perhaps the best question then is not how many times have you shared the gospel lately, but what does my neighbor need right now? Am I meeting those needs? What kind of servants can I be to them that they might be persuaded? This won't always look like the Hail Mary down the field pass. That's probably the only sports illustration you're gonna get from me this month. But in fact, I have found that the gospel conversations are best uh, incremental. Many gospel conversations upon one another, seeking to understand even as I hope to be understood. Making a case for the gospel often requires me to do several things, to answer questions and correct assumptions. It requires me to understand wounds and fears and fears. It requires me to be okay when they say uncomfortable things to me. To be honest about my own struggles, even how I share my, as, as I share my, how my faith has helped me to navigate them. It requires me to admit when I'm wrong, to admit particularly when I don't know, and then to go find out. It requires me to make the goodness of the gospel clear, even as I describe the cost of following Jesus, And it requires me to make a case for the gospel over and over and over again. Evangelism, in some ways, turns out to be more like counseling than it does lecturing. But being servants of others means that I want to be whatever servant they need me to be, that they might join me in serving him. If the fear of God opens our mouths, friends, Love for others makes us creative. I have to warn you, this kind of, being this kind of servant will interrupt you. It will change your plans. It will require flexibility, humility, and patience from you. It will require you to surrender all kinds of rights, to get very uncomfortable, to step in awkward territory. And the only way we can hope to be such a servant is to know that we have been served in an infinitely more profound way. Did you know that Jesus described himself as a servant? He said he came to serve his father, first and foremost, to do his father's will, to serve his father's pleasure. It's why he became a human. It's why he went to the cross. But did you know that Jesus also said he came as a servant of us? In Matthew chapter 20, he says, even as the son of man, referring to himself, came to not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This was the supreme act of service according to Christ, is not just to become a human, to take the form of a servant, but to serve us by meeting our greatest need, by going to his death upon the cross. Do you, can you comprehend how many rights he had to give up to do so? Whatever rights Jesus may ask you to set aside in serving others, they cannot compare with the one who didn't just have his rights taken from them, from him, he laid his rights aside willingly, becoming a servant even unto death. When it comes to evangelism, motives matter, friends. Guilt, fear of man, shame or pride can't produce the courage, creativity and consistency we need. Only the gospel can. Only the gospel can awaken the fear of love, a fear of God and the love of others within us. And so if you struggle to take initiative in the lives of non-believers think upon how christ has served you if you struggle to give up your rights to give up your evening to give up your comfort to give up your reputation to become all things to all people even that person who is on your mind right now think upon what has already been given for you you cannot add to that work not even by your evangelism you cannot possibly make god happier with you but being satisfied and how he has served you is the only thing that will make you the kind of humble, creative, persevering servant your neighbors need. Friends, I feel very far short of these things. But isn't this the kind of church we want? Where We help one another to live these kind of lives and see what God does. Only means we have is the gospel of Jesus Christ who is our standard, yes, but also the power And the motive we need to make disciples of all nations teaching them to obey all that christ has commanded only he can awaken the fear of god and love of others in us would you pray with me god we are and i say i am very far short of these things and i tremble before you as a steward asking for your forgiveness where i have wasted my life lived for temporary comforts imagined that my hope is found in the here and now and not lived for your kingdom, even as it would make me strange, even as I might lose opinion and approval, even as it would change the standards by which I evaluate accomplishment. Forgive me, Lord. replace my stubborn fear of human beings with the fear of God that I would serve your pleasure. And I pray the same for my friends here. Pray for those who are not yet Christians, that they would see that the gospel is the most natural thing a Christian could share, could teach, It's not an imposition, it is an act of service. And would they respond to that gospel now by receiving it? Seeing the one who has served them supremely and is inviting them into life and freedom and serving his pleasure above all. Lord, would you work among us, convict us, and would you drive us to our knees, cause us to put our hands to the plow and get to work that we might see you show off in power. We serve your pleasure, Lord, and we can't wait for the day where we see the fruit of our humble work and give you the glory for it. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.